This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So this talk is going to be about the question of whether God exists. You know, the question is just, does God exist? Um, I'm going to spend um, about half the talk really just talking about the question, uh, the, the meaning and the force of the question, uh, and um, what it would take to offer a, a philosophical answer to the question. And then the second half of the talk, roughly the second half, will be a quick run-through of one of the ways that St. Thomas argues for the existence of God. And the plan is to leave lots and lots of time for Q&A. Uh, so Father was telling me, for those who were involved in the Catholic Student Association, a number of you have been um, already participating in a kind of series of you know talks and presentations about arguments uh, for God's existence. So some of what I'll be doing will be sort of retracing things that you've encountered before. Um, and for others, it may be the first time that you've, you've encountered some of these concepts. Uh, so we can look forward to the Q&A as the time. You know, if you've heard some of these ideas before and you have objections ready to go or questions ready to go, please ask them uh, in the Q&A. Okay. So, I mean, we should begin by saying that it's very safe to say that we can all agree that if there is any distinction to be made between big questions and small questions, then the question of whether God exists is among the very biggest of questions. But we think of questions as big for several reasons. Sometimes a question is big because of how fundamentally its answer might impact our understanding of the world, or how its answer might provide a principle for answering other questions. So we might say that that's a question that's big in theoretical or scientific terms. Sometimes a question is big because of how much the answer to the question matters to us or how much the answer to the question might impact the way that we live. This is a question that is great or big morally or existentially. Sometimes a question is big just because of how difficult the question is or because of how much disagreement or discussion there is about that question. As we might say that a question is big in a given field of study just because it occupies the attention of so many researchers. Finally, sometimes a question is big because answering that question is going to presuppose our answers to many other prior questions, so that answering the question quickly or briefly is very difficult. The question, does God exist, is big in all of the ways that I've just mentioned. Much of how we understand the world depends on our answer to this question. This question matters greatly to how we might live. It is not an easy question to answer, at least by philosophical reasoning. There is much disagreement and discussion about it, and something I should note before a very short lecture, answering the question fully will be impossible in a short time. Now, some of the biggest and most fundamental questions that human beings have are not only difficult to answer, the questions themselves can be difficult to understand or to articulate clearly. And many apparent disagreements about what we all think of as the most important or fundamental human questions, disagreements often arise because the people disagreeing are not in fact even asking or trying to answer the same question. They understand the force of the question in different ways. This is just to say that it's very easy for human beings to talk past one another um, and often it's just as important to attend to trying to understand what a question is actually asking as it is to consider the arguments that can be made for or against various possible answers to that question. Okay, for this reason, in this talk, I'm going to give about as much attention to talking about the question of God's existence and what that question is asking, as I will very briefly to providing an overview of how one might argue for God's existence. I am going to primarily approach the question as a student of philosophy who thinks that God does exist, that God's existence can be rationally proved, at the very least that belief in God's existence is rationally defensible. Um, I'm also going to be drawing frequently on the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas's father, uh, Robert mentioned uh, for the Thomistic Institute that's you know, co-sponsoring this talk, the thought of St. Thomas as a kind of touchstone, you know, common point of reference. Um, so I won't be constantly citing texts of Aquinas as I speak, but what I'm going to offer in this lecture is, you know, in line with St. Thomas's way of thinking about this question. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm going to proceed in three sections. First, I'm going to talk about the question, does God exist, and address what the question means. Second, I'm going to talk in a general way about how one might go about arguing that God does exist. And then third, I'm going to talk in a brief fashion about one of St. Thomas's famous five ways of proving God's existence. And for those who have encountered St. Thomas's five ways before, the argument I'm going to focus on is the first way, the argument for motion. And then finally, at the end, I will say just a little bit about what philosophical proof that God exists might have to do with faith in the God of Jesus Christ. All right. So first, on the meaning of the question, does God exist? What should we take that question to be asking? We can begin by comparing two other instances of existence questions. So these two examples. Did Julius Caesar exist? And do black holes exist? In the first case, we ask about whether a particular individual human being existed. The human being we might describe as the consul and dictator of Rome, who was stabbed by senators, including his friend Brutus, on the Ides of March in 44 BC. In the second case, do black holes exist? We ask about a certain general kind of thing, what a philosopher would call a universal kind or common nature, a kind that we understand in terms of a definition. And we ask whether there are in fact any instances of such a kind actually existing in the world. Now, taking these first two questions about Julius Caesar and about black holes, we can ask which of these questions is the question, does God exist, more like? Our answer to that is going to depend upon whether we take the word God to be a proper name, like Julius Caesar, or a common or universal name, like black hole. Now, the name God is often regarded as being like a proper name. And in the way that we use God um, in prayer, the way that we use God as a term in expressing um, you know, Catholic religious views, Christian religious views, we frequently use the name God as if it is a proper name. After all, we use the name God to pick out one unique being. We capitalize in English the word God when referring to God. We also frequently use the name God as a term of address in the second person, saying things like, oh God as we would say, hi, Peter. And we refer to God in the third person in the way that we would refer to a particular person by a proper name. We say things like, God answered her prayer, just as we would say, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. By contrast, although Christians also capitalize in English the word Lord and use Lord as a term of address in the second person, we say things like, oh, Lord, in the third person, we usually say the Lord and use Lord as a term of address. Sorry, um, uh, in the third person, we say the Lord using the definite article. We don't usually say the God answered my prayers, but God answered my prayers. So from our practice, it certainly seems as if we use God as a proper name, like Peter or Julius Caesar picking out one unique individual rather than a kind or a nature. But if God is taken as a proper name, this is going to significantly affect the way that we're going to think about a proof or argument that God exists. Generally speaking, it can be harder to prove that a particular individual exists or did exist than it is to prove that there is at least one instance of a nature or kind. And at the very least, the kind of evidence or arguments given for the existence of a particular individual is going to differ from the evidence or arguments given for the existence of a kind or nature. So let's take the example of Julius Caesar first. The description of Julius Caesar, again, as the consul who crossed the Rubicon, became dictator, and was murdered by a group including Brutus in 44 BC, etc., whatever else you would include in the description of Caesar, that description of that individual is going to form the target that our evidence needs to support when we argue that Julius Caesar was, in fact, a historical person. And so this determines the sort of evidence that we're going to consider in favor of his having existed. In this sort of case, the only kind of evidence available to us 
for his existence now is past testimony of various kinds. To ask whether Caesar existed is to ask whether there was someone who led an army across the Rubicon, became dictator, and was murdered in 44 BC. And we answer that question through available testimony by historical sources. With enough common testimony and independent historical sources for the basic facts of Caesar's life, facts belonging to our description of Caesar, we can be confident that he existed, even if we're in doubt or even are in fact incorrect about certain details of his life. By contrast, it's because black hole names a common kind or a universal that it's possible for there to be arguments for the likely existence of black holes as a kind of thing defined in a certain way from equations in physics. To reason that black holes likely exist on the basis of theoretical physics, such that we expect to observe them, or rather their distinctive effects, is not to reason immediately to the existence of any particular individual black hole. Having reasoned that it's likely that black holes exist, then we can consider the possibility that particular astronomical observations are best explained by the presence of a black hole, like the one asserted to exist at the center of the galaxy. All right, without entering further into the details of these two different kinds of cases, the existence of Caesar, the existence of black holes, the central point that we need is this. It makes a tremendous difference whether you intend to prove the existence of an individual or you intend to prove the existence of some instance having a kind or nature. Okay. So the central question about the meaning of the question, does God exist, is this. Uh, which of those two kinds of question is it? All right. Now, despite what contemporary English usage suggests, the more classic view historically and the view reflected in St. Thomas's usage of the Latin word deus is that at least when it comes to proving God's existence philosophically, God should be treated as a kind name like dog or human being or black hole rather than as a proper name like Fido or Peter. Even if we also hold or have reasons to conclude that there is and can only be one God. So we do sometimes express the question in English. You'll sometimes hear the question of God's existence um, posed as, is there a God? Right? Is there a God? And this formulation is a more accurate articulation in English of the philosophical question that St. Thomas is asking in the article containing his famous five ways of proving God's existence. The question is whether there is a God. The question is whether there is a divine being. St. Thomas's philosophical question about the existence of a divine being is not, however, the only way in which, in which one can ask the question about God's existence. Many of the reasons and much of the best evidence that motivate an individual's belief that God exists are not so much about proving the existence of a being with the divine nature, they are instead evidence or reasons to believe that the God of Abraham, the God of Jesus Christ, the one who acted in the world in many particular ways and revealed himself to us exists, especially when we're talking about the sort of things that often motivate an individual's belief, things such as spiritual experiences of grace, experiences in prayer, or the witnessing of the miraculous as a reason for believing that God exists. On the personal level, most Christians are committed to the existence of God as a matter of belief, including belief in the works that God has performed and does perform, rather than fundamentally as a matter of rational philosophical proof. The reasons to believe that God might have revealed himself in Christ or that he offers salvation these are not matters of strict philosophical proof. And so if the question that we're interested in is the question of, is, is the question, does the God who became incarnate in Christ exist? That's a question that's not going to be answered by philosophical reasoning alone. That is, it's not going to be answered by philosophical reasoning that is not itself dependent upon divine revelation. All right, with that qualification, though, 
the philosophical question, is there a God, is for St. Thomas a question that is in itself, as a philosophical question, preliminary to faith in divine revelation and faith in all of the particular deeds that Christians believe God has performed in the world. In this regard, St. Thomas draws a distinction between what he calls the preambles of faith and what he calls the mysteries of faith. And this is a very important distinction for understanding the relationship between faith and reason, as St. Thomas thinks about that relationship. So by preambles of faith, things that are in some way preparatory for faith, St. Thomas means truths pertaining to Christian teaching that can, in themselves and in principle, be proved philosophically. And for St. Thomas, the existence and the uniqueness of God are his most frequent examples of such preambles of faith. By contrast, the mysteries of the Christian faith are truths such as the Trinity and the Incarnation. According to St. Thomas, such truths are known only by virtue of divine revelation and the divine gift of faith. Uh, Christians believe that, in fact, we are given the ability by grace to know truths of this sort, truths that surpass the capacity of human reasoning to prove or to comprehend. Now, in calling the existence of God a preamble, or calling it something that's preparatory for faith, St. Thomas does not mean to say that each individual believer must first rationally, philosophically prove God's existence prior to believing in Revelation. In fact, St. Thomas clearly asserts that most believing Christians believe in the existence of a divine being and in the uniqueness of the divine being by the assistance of God-given faith, just as they also believe by the assistance of faith that this one God spoke to Moses became a human being, and so on. So rational consideration of attempted philosophical proofs for God's existence may help in a given case to pave the way or remove obstacles from one's acceptance of grace and the gift of faith, but they can do this even if one does not, strictly speaking, demonstrate beyond all doubt that a God exists. So, for example, one might follow an argument for the existence of a divine being well enough to conclude something like this, that it seems reasonable to think that the existence of a divine being can be proved, or one could follow an argument well enough for such an argument to be persuasive, just as, and I'll look at the physics professor, just as I might follow what a physicist says just well enough about black holes for it to be reasonable for me to be persuaded that black holes likely exist, even if I can't reproduce, reproduce all of the details of the argumentation, can't respond to all of the objections, can't clarify even my own confusions, and so on. All right, so as we turn to talking about how St. Thomas thinks we can argue philosophically for the existence of a divine being, we have to keep in mind that the immediate target in the discussion is not for us in a short lecture, a strict demonstration beyond all doubt that a divine being exists. I will be sketching an argument that Thomas thinks does in fact constitute a strict demonstration for God's existence, but um, there's only so much that one can do in explaining and attempting to defend such an argument in a short, in a short period of time. All right, so I've already indicated that if we're going to take the word God as a kind name or a name of a nature rather than as a proper name, then we're going to have to think about what a divine being is in terms of some sort of definition. That is, some formula containing some sorts of properties or characteristics that we attribute to a divine being that explains what we understand the word God to mean. Just as three-sided planar figure is a definition of triangle, and two-footed talking animal might be a working definition for human being. 
But here, in fact, and I, I mentioned before, the question, does God exist, can be a question that is understood differently by different people. There, in fact, can be more than one candidate for what we mean by a divine being when we go about trying to prove that one exists or doesn't exist. I'm going to point to just two approaches that are common for theists, common for uh, Catholics in recent discussions. So there are other candidates for what one might think of as what is meant by the word God. But I want to distinguish two uh, approaches that are very commonly encountered in uh, popular discussions and in uh, philosophical academic discussions. So the first of these uh, we can call the classical theism approach. That's just what it's called by people who articulate this view in recent philosophical literature uh, and in popular presentations. Um, the other I'm going to just call the Thomistic approach. So right up front, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you that what usually is presented as like the classical view about how to think about a proof of God's existence is actually a little bit different from how St. Thomas thinks about an argument for God's existence. Okay, so on the classical theism approach, we take the definition of God that is the target of a proof for God's existence to include all of the classical divine attributes. And usually when people list what they, these are, they'll say things like omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence. They'll refer to these as the omni-attributes, right? So a successful proof of God's existence is a proof that establishes the existence of a being with those characteristics, okay? So this is a common familiar approach. All right, so one not infrequent objection to St. Thomas's five ways which argue for the existence of a divine being, um, but under the heading of titles like an unmoved first mover or an uncaused first cause or an absolutely necessary being, one objection against the five ways is that it is not at all obvious why this God, the God proved by Thomas's five ways, is the God of classical theism. That is, a God with all of those classical omni-attributes. So many critics of St. Thomas in both popular and academic works will devote all of their attention to St. Thomas's five arguments for an unmoved first mover, an uncaused first cause, and so on, without considering what St. Thomas does in the 24 questions that follow the five ways in his Summa Theologiae. So in those 24 questions that follow, St. Thomas goes on to offer, um, you know, attempts at philosophical proof that a divine being that is a first uncaused cause must also be absolutely simple, supremely perfect, the highest good, infinite in being and goodness, omnipresent, absolutely immutable, eternal, unique, omniscient, loving, just, providential, and omnipotent. So all the omni-attributes were in there at some point. So if by a divine being one explicitly means a being that has all of those you know, classical divine attributes, then proof of God's existence is not fully accomplished by St. Thomas until the end of the 26th question of the first part of his Summa Theologiae. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the, the Summa Theologiae, the first 26 questions, this, we're talking about like 250 pages of arguments in a, in a modern edition. Um, 250 pages of argumentation after he says that he has given his arguments for the claim that God exists or that a God exists. Okay. All right. So if not the definition of God in terms of what um, is now usually referred to as classical theism, what's the definition of a divine being that St. Thomas uses in his proofs for God's existence? As the Thomistic scholar David Twetton has recently argued, the definition of God that is operative in St. Thomas's five ways is instead something like this. Something that exists above all things, which is the principle, the source or the cause of all things, and is removed from all things, separate from all things. That's um, almost a direct quotation. That's a close paraphrase of what St. Thomas himself says in an article where he um, offers this formula and immediately says, quote, this is what those who name God intend to signify. So let me, let me say that again. By 
uh, a God, a divine being. Thomas means something that exists above all things, which is the principle of all things and is removed or separated from all things. All right, so in St. Thomas's famous five ways, he claims to prove the existence of first, an unmoved first mover, second, an uncaused first efficient cause, third, an absolutely necessary existent that is the cause of existence for all other things, fourth, a supreme and most perfect being that is the cause of existence and goodness for all other things, and fifth, an intelligent cause of the ordering towards ends found in natural things. Now, each of these five formulae, if you inspect it, in fact, corresponds in structure to the definition of a divine being that St. Thomas puts forward. Each of these is something existing above all things as a principle, but removed from, separate from, or somehow radically distinct from all other things beside himself. Okay, so for example, even just in the formula, an uncaused first efficient cause of all, you have the superiority, you have being the cause of others, and you have being unlike everything that's caused by being uncaused. Okay. All right, now it may not. In fact, it should not be immediately evident that a first unmoved mover or an uncaused first efficient cause must be the personal, omnipotent, supremely perfect, provident creator of the world. Again, St. Thomas devotes some 250 pages in a modern edition to proving that a first uncaused efficient cause must have all of the divine attributes just mentioned. It also may not be immediately evident, as of the five proofs for God's existence in question two of the Summa Theologiae, that there must be only one God, or even that each of these five gods must be one and the same God. This, too, is something that St. Thomas establishes by later argumentation. All right. With those preliminaries, and with an understanding of what St. Thomas's philosophical proofs for God's existence are actually intended to accomplish, we can give a very brief explanation of one of St. Thomas's famous five ways of proving the existence of God. I'm going to focus on St. Thomas's first way, uh, the famous argument from motion. This is the one that St. Thomas himself announces uh, by saying it is, quote, the first and more manifest way of proving God's existence. All right, before we get into the first way, we should just note the things that it has in common with the other four ways and with any successful argument for God's existence as St. Thomas thinks about the, uh, the issue. So first, we've already noted that the conclusions of all the five ways are structurally similar. They all propose that something exists above all things as the principle or cause of all, but is radically distinct from or separated from all of the things that it causes. Second that we can note, all five of St. Thomas's ways argue from some very general feature of the world to the existence of a divine being as the cause of that feature of the world. That is, all five of the five ways employ what St. Thomas calls effect to cause reasoning to argue that a divine cause exists. So it's important to note how general, how universal the features of the world from which the five ways proceed are. St. Thomas does not argue from particular effects of God in time, such as miracles, or even from particular but common features of the world, such as the marvelous organization of the parts of living things. That's not, for, in Thomas's mind, the starting point for a demonstration that God exists. Instead, the five features of the world from which he argues are that things in the world undergo change, that things in the world act as efficient causes upon other things. One thing causes something else to happen, as I'm doing to the paper right now. 
that at least some of the things in the world are contingent in their existence. You know, this paper hasn't always existed. I haven't always existed. That there are things more and less perfect, more and less good found in the world. And that things in the natural world act or behave in a regular orderly way. Okay, those are the general features of the world that Thomas thinks you can found an argument for God's existence upon. Okay, now let's talk about the first way. St. Thomas describes the argument for motion as the more manifest way because the fact of motion or change is so obvious to us. And he says at the beginning of the proof, quote, it is certain and evident to our senses that in the world some things are in motion. This is something that St. Thomas receives from Aristotle, this view that the most obvious feature of the world that we know through the senses is that things change. Okay, if we, we know nothing else. We know that things are not always the same. Okay. All right, St. Thomas begins the proof properly then by asserting a principle, which he proceeds to defend at some length. And this is the famous principle, the, the key premise of the uh, argument from motion, that whatever is in motion is moved by another. Whatever is in motion is moved by another. St. Thomas's defense of this principle, which also comes from Aristotelian philosophy, articulates what motion is and what it is for one thing to be the mover of another in terms of the fundamental Aristotelian notions of actuality and potentiality. So we have to say something to introduce these notions. In brief, act or actuality is what exists now, okay, what presently exists, and potency or potentiality is what can exist or what is able to be. So actuality is what does exist. This is the first way in to think about the distinction between potentiality and actuality. Actuality is what does exist. Potentiality is what can exist or what is able to exist. It is a central Aristotelian philosophical claim and one that we could spend quite a bit of time just thinking about the implications of this claim. It's a central Aristotelian philosophical claim that potency or potentiality is a real feature of the world. Potency, potentiality is a way in which things are. It is, we can even say, a way in which things exist. For Aristotle, being or what is includes not just what is actual now, it also includes what can be. Okay. Not, not just what will, will be, right, but what right now could be. Okay. Uh, so the usual example, uh, Father, remember, uh, he may or may not remember this example. I always in class would give the example of uh, my ability to, to learn to speak Russian as a potentiality that I have. I could acquire that knowledge. I could learn how to do that. I always, it's a safe example because I know I'm never going to do it. Uh, so I, I will continue to have this merely as a potentiality. Okay. But it's important for Aristotle to refer to what I can do or the way that I could come to be. This is not the same as just saying what I'm not. Right. It's not just non-being. Right. So this is part of Aristotle's response to Parmenides. For Parmenides, there's only being and non-being. Right. But for Aristotle, there's this other thing being in potency. And potentiality is real. Right? Um, so we could, we could spend a lot of time on this. I, I would say it's a notion that you know seems very dry, sort of ontological at first. But um, if you take it seriously, it has a significant impact about how you think about yourself. Right? What, what you can be is a feature of you. Right? And one that calls for fulfillment then. Right? There's not just what you are and what you aren't. Right? There's also the reality of what can be. Okay. So for St. Thomas, following Aristotle, there is something um, real about the potential. Okay, what is motion? 
motion involves, first pass at this, we can say, motion involves the passage from a state of potentiality to a state of actuality. Anything that changes goes from being potentially such and such to being actually such and such. As for example, water goes from being potentially hot to being actually hot. As my hand goes from being potentially over there to actually over there. Okay. And when my hand is here, that it can be over there is a feature of its being. And this ability to be over there is realized or actualized when my hand comes to actually be there. Okay. So the way that St. Thomas following Aristotle thinks about motion, he thinks of motion as the fulfillment or actualization of potentiality. Okay. So this is, you know, you can say grounded in what might seem like a kind of, you know, fairly common sense way of just thinking about what we should say about the way the world is if, you know, things like this happen. Okay. It's a very different way of thinking about motion from the way that one thinks about motion in contemporary physics, uh, the way that one, um, uh, you know, uh, might think about motion for other, you know, philosophical, you know, very different metaphysical views besides Aristotle's. Um, the whole of the first way turns on whether one accepts this way of thinking about the reality of the world, right? If the potential is real, and if motion is the fulfillment of the actualization of potentiality, that's the, the necessary starting point for the argument to go forward. Okay. As St. Thomas puts it, explaining motion, he says, quote, nothing is in motion except insofar as it is in potency to that to which it is in motion. So here, not focusing just on the starting point of potentiality and the end point of actuality, the thing that's in motion, right? It can't be in motion unless it's still in potentiality to some further actual state, okay? So whatever is in motion is, you could say it's being actualized, but it's also still in a state of potentiality that is being fulfilled. All right, see, Thomas tells us then that what it is for one thing to move another is for that thing, the mover, to reduce the thing that's moved from potency to act. Okay. And he uses this way of thinking about motion and what a mover does to argue for the claim that we mentioned before, that whatever is in motion is moved by another. So this is one of the things he says as a part of this argument, quote, something cannot be reduced from potency to act except by some being in act, as fire makes wood, which is potentially hot, to be actually hot. Okay, so just another example, a mover, something that's hot, making something else that is not yet hot, but is potentially hot to be actually hot. But here we come to the critical claim. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to quote from St. Thomas again here. Quote, It is not possible that the same thing should be at the same time in act and in potency in the same way. For what is actually hot cannot at the same time be potentially hot, but it is at that same time potentially cold. It is therefore impossible that in the same respect and in the same way, something should be both mover and move, or that it should move itself. Therefore, and now he reaches the conclusion, that principle, therefore, whatever is in motion must be moved by another. Now, this is by far the most difficult part of St. Thomas's proof in the first way, and much would need to be said to explain and defend this reasoning fully. The example that's, well, there's one uh, pitfall we have to avoid here, which is one of the examples that St. Thomas has provided, actually hot fire, making potentially hot wood to be actually hot. This might make it seem as if St. Thomas is saying that one thing can only move another if the mover already possesses the characteristic that it brings about or actualizes in the thing that's being moved. But that's not what St. Thomas means. Instead, what he means is this. 
And this, this would be my sort of restatement of the, the, the actual force, the meaning of whatever is in motion is moved by another. If a thing is in motion, its potentiality, its ability to be in some new or different way, is being reduced to actuality. Father Norbert can attest that he watched me push like an eraser on the whiteboard tray like for like you know 30 minutes at a time while I'm <laughs> talking about examples of motion. Okay. Um, it's it's a bad habit on my part. You know, at some point it sticks, you know, the example is clear. Okay. Um, uh, if a thing is in motion, its potentiality, its ability to be in some new way is being reduced to actuality. And this can only occur by virtue of some actuality possessed by whatever its mover is. And the actuality by which its potentiality is being reduced to actuality has to be distinct from the potentiality of the thing moved. Okay? There's a lot packed in there. Okay? There's the potentiality in the thing that is moved, the paper, to be over there. My hand, we can say here, is the mover, causing that potentiality to be actualized. When Thomas says whatever is in motion is moved by another, all that he needs to mean for the argument to succeed is this. There is some actuality distinct from the potentiality of the thing that's being changed. And the thing that's in motion, the thing that's changing depends upon that distinct actuality for its being moved. Okay. Because the motion is itself the actualization of this thing that's potential. Okay. And the actuality that is the source of that actuality can't just be the potentiality of the th that the thing had in the first place. Okay. Okay. So there are no, another way to put it is there are no self-realizing potentialities. If a potentiality is actualized, it's always because of some actuality that's distinct from that potential. Okay. And a lot of uh, sort of common objections against whatever is in motion is moved by another people will say like, well, I move my arm, right? Isn't that self-motion? And um, yeah, it, it is an instance of what you could call self-motion, but the mere ability of my hand to be over there is not the cause of my hands actually being over there. It's because, right, my forearm was actual in a certain way by itself being moved, you know, by another of my muscles and so on. Okay. Okay. That's the first premise of the argument for motion. Whatever is in motion is moved by another. Okay, people may have objections, questions, um, and we can we can talk about it as long as uh, as people want. Okay, all right. But so far in Thomas's argument for God's existence, we have two claims: certain things in the world are in motion, and whatever is in motion is moved by another. So again, what we have is the claim is that for each thing in motion, each thing whose potentiality is being actualized, there must be a mover a thing whose actuality is distinct from that potentiality. But what about the mover and its own actuality? What if the actuality of the mover is itself the actualization of a potency? That is, what if, for example, A is moved by B, but B is itself moved by C, and C is moved by D, and so on? So St. Thomas next considers this question, giving a very quick argument that such a series cannot go on to infinity. It cannot regress to infinity. And the simplest way to explain St. Thomas's reasoning for this claim that an infinite regress of moved movers is impossible is by noting that in a series of moved movers, where A moves B and B moves C and C moves D and so on, D depends more upon B then upon C for its being moved. So again, A moves B, B moves C, C moves D. D actually depends more upon B than upon C for its being moved. Okay. Because if B weren't moving C, then C wouldn't move D. 
So like think of, you know, train cars, right? Okay. Um, it's the one, it's actually the mover that's far away that the, 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 the more proximate thing moved depends upon more for its being moved. Okay. And so in our series we just named, D actually depends then even more upon A than it does upon B or C. Because A moves B so that B moves C so that C moves D. So for this reason, St. Thomas concludes that if there were no first mover, a mover that is not itself moved in such a series, then nothing would be moved at all. If you had, if you posit an infinite regress, then really what you're saying is there is nothing upon which the whole of the series depends, right? And then you have no explanation of how any of the things in the series can be a mover, right? Because each thing moved actually depends more upon the prior than upon the thing that's close to it in the series, okay? Again, that's the next major, that's the next important premise of this argument. We can spend a lot of time. There are uh, good objections to be made and, and responses to those objections uh, to be offered. Okay, but it is these premises that we've articulated so far that give us the conclusion that St. Thomas arrives at, that, quote, it is therefore necessary to arrive at a first mover put in motion by no other, and this everyone understands to be God. Okay, or at least everyone who has studied a bit of Aristotelian philosophy. Okay. All right, as I said before, it may not be obvious, even it shouldn't be obvious, that a first unmoved mover has all of the attributes that we attribute to God. These attributes are, again, what the next 250 pages of Thomas's Summa Theologiae are intended to prove. But St. Thomas proves everything that he thinks he can prove philosophically about the divine being just from his being a first unmoved mover and a first efficient cause. So, you know, it's, it's the starting point for a very long series of proofs. And in his mind, everything else said about God philosophically is derivable from this initial claim, okay? That there is a first mover put in motion by no other. Okay, okay. to give just some indication of how St. Thomas gets this lengthy process of argumentation going, how does he derive the divine attributes from this, you know, uh, fairly simple formula, a first mover moved by no other. Um, this also will begin to make clear why a first mover must be something transcendent, something radically distinct, existing above all things. Well, we can consider the very first conclusion that St. Thomas draws in the very next article of the Summa Theologiae. And this is the point at which immediately becomes clear, oh, okay, this thing that St. Thomas has called God is radically unlike any of the things that we know through the senses. So from what St. Thomas has argued in the argument for motion, he has everything necessary to conclude that the divine being is purely actual. Purely actual. That is, the divine being is not a being whose actuality is the actualization of a potency. As my hands being over here is the fulfillment of the way that my hand can be. Okay. And even when my hand is actually here, you can still say, in a way, my hand has the ability to be here, and that ability is realized. Okay. Okay. The divine being is not a being whose actuality is the actualization of a potency. For if it were, then something else, something prior, something with a distinct actuality would have to be the first unmoved mover, the source of the actuality of the thing that we were calling the divine being. So everything that's subject to motion and change has potentiality, an ability to be this way or that way, that is actualized through something else already actual. But God is pure actuality, actuality that is not the fulfillment of any potency. That is, it is not that God is because he first can be, he simply is. And this is why St. Thomas is going to um, see in the divine name given in Exodus 3.14, he who is, right, is the supremely appropriate name of God. Okay, that's just the starting point. 
from that, Thomas thinks there are lots and lots of arguments, 250 pages of arguments, but he thinks you can prove all the rest of the things to be said about the divine being from that starting point. Okay, so this has been just a very brief presentation of just one of St. Thomas's proofs of the existence of a divine being in his Summa Theologiae. Countless articles, many dissertations, and books have been written to critique and to defend each of St. Thomas's five ways, including the first way. So I just have to reiterate again, of course, by no means would I say that in a brief lecture I have adequately demonstrated that a divine being exists. But we have indicated in a brief way one of the ways that St. Thomas thinks such a philosophical demonstration can be made. All right, to bring things to a close, I want to return to saying something more about the relationship between reason and faith and the role that argumentation for God's existence plays in the life of faith for someone who does believe in the God who became incarnate in Christ. For St. Thomas, one of the most important scriptural witnesses concerning the relationship between reason and faith is that given in Romans 1.20, in which we read that, quote, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. So although St. Thomas thinks that our ability to reason well has been wounded by sin, it is nevertheless possible, even if difficult, to reason to the existence and the attributes of God from the things that God has created. Because we can argue for God's existence, it is therefore also reasonable to believe in the possibility of divine revelation. Understanding of the world leads us to God, but importantly, St. Thomas thinks that philosophical reasoning ultimately concludes that God infinitely exceeds our understanding and comprehension. And so to know God intimately, we will depend upon his self-revelation his revelation of the mysteries of faith, and we will depend upon grace by which he unites us with himself. So in the theology of St. Thomas, philosophical reasoning of the sort that you know, we've, we've been exploring today, philosophical reasoning concerning the existence and attributes of God is not an end in itself. This sort of reasoning is at the service ultimately for St. Thomas of the praise of God and the contemplation of the deeper mysteries of the Christian faith. All right, that's the end of the lecture, and we can take as much time for Q&As as people would like. So thank you all.